This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from the first Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But the Lord said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shama pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, speak for your servants are listening. Quiet our restless hearts, silence every voice but your own. May we hear the living voice of your spirit speaking through your word. And may we leave changed, O Lord, full of love, loyalty, and obedience to Jesus, our great King, in whose name we pray. Amen. There are really two ways to travel. There's the slow way, the relaxed way, where you go to a country and you work on a farm for a few months, you take some cooking classes, you study the language, you go to the park and you spend hours with old men playing checkers. That's the way my wife would love to travel. And I sincerely hope that when I die, she's able to do that, because I know it would mean so much to her. But that's not how I travel. 
I want to feel the G-forces pushing me back in my seat. I want to cram as many destinations into my journey as I can, because there's so much to see in this amazing world, and I want to take all of it in. On December 26th, we flew from Kutaisi to Thessaloniki. We stayed there one night. We took a bus up to Sofia, Bulgaria. The following night, we flew to Malta. We spent five days, I think, in Marsaxlok, a little fishing village on the south coast. Then we flew to Lisbon. We spent a week in Portugal with some friends. Then we flew to the French Riviera, to Nice. And uh, while we were there, we took a train to Monaco. PJ and I actually visited Monaco five times because we walked back and forth across the street repeatedly, across the crosswalk between Monaco and France, just to get our numbers up. And then we flew to Krakow in Poland, and we just got back last night. That's a lot to jam in in three weeks. But Man, we saw a lot and we experienced a lot. It's like a tasting platter whipping by you and you're trying to grab dishes as they come by. And that's kind of a picture of what we're doing in this series, Christ in the Old Testament. We could have done the slow journey and just gone verse by verse and absorbed it, which is a fantastic way to study the scripture. But we're trying to race through these 39 books and have like a really high level view of what God is teaching in the Old Testament, which is just packed full of riches And our eyes are particularly looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the sum and the summit of all God's promises. And he's there on every page in the Old Testament. And here we are, eight or nine sermons into the series in the first book of Samuel. We actually did some slow travel through this book in 2019 and 2020. I think I preached 28 messages on this fantastic gripping Shakespeare-level kind of book. And if you want to go on our podcast and check it out, that would be a wonderful idea. I scanned through those notes, and I just took 28 sermons, and I'm compressing it into this message right here. Okay, so let's take a deep breath, and I will attempt to very rapidly survey this book and then see what God is revealing about Jesus in this book. You know, this book takes place around the year 1000 BC, a thousand years before the birth of Christ. It's this transition from the absolute crazy anarchy of the book of Judges to the stability of the monarchy in Israel. Samuel, Saul, and David are the main characters of these books. And the book has a very unpromising beginning. It starts in a cul-de-sac, in a dead end, with a barren woman in an unhappy marriage. Hannah's dead womb. You'd think that'd be a most unpromising beginning for God's story. But dead wounds and failed humanity are the only place that God can begin with in a fallen world. And in her deep anguish, this barren woman, Hannah, she prays to the Lord and she weeps bitterly and she promises, God, if you give me a son... If you bring life into this womb, I will give my child back to you, and he will serve you as a priest in your temple. And sure enough, the Lord remembers Hannah. She gives birth, and after weaning her son, she leaves her little three-year-old boy at the temple. But it turns out the temple, the, the, the tabernacle, is a deeply corrupt place. The very place that should have been full of holiness and purity and love for God is actually the center of Israel's sin and corruption. And God appears to Samuel in the middle of the night, and he reveals judgment is coming. I'm going to clean house. I'm going to wipe out the high priest and his evil sons and start over. 
But Israel is complacent. And they assume, you know, God's, God's in our pocket. He's our tribal deity. We have him under control. And, and repentance and seeking God are not something that we really need to do. And when the enemy Philistines go to battle against Israel, the Israelites take the Ark of the Covenant. The priests carry out the Ark of the Covenant, this gold inlaid chest, the throne of God on earth. They take it from the Holy of Holies, from the inner sanctum, and they carry it into battle as a surefire guarantee of victory. They're literally putting God in a box. But as Dale Ralph Davis writes, Yahweh, the Lord, will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. God will allow you to experience shame and defeat rather than letting you carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh is going to allow Israel to be disappointed with him in order to awaken them to the kind of God he really is. So despite the ark being there, despite the presence of the Lord God of hosts, Israel just comes apart at the seams in battle. Eli's sons are slaughtered along with thousands of others. And worst of all, the Philistines capture the ark. It's a terrible time. One of Israel's lowest moments in their entire history. The glory has departed from Israel. Seems like God's story is over before it's begun. And the exuberant Philistines, they carry the ark and Israel's God, they think, back in triumph to their territory. And they set it in front of their idol Dagon in his temple in one of their cities as a kind of trophy to the power and supremacy of their God over Israel's tribal God. They lock the temple doors, they go to bed, sleeping soundly and happily after their victory. But when the janitor opens up the temple early the next morning, there's a shocking sight in the early light of dawn. Their precious, enormous idol Dagon has fallen flat on his face, toppled and smashed in front of this little box. They prop the idol back up. Same thing happens again. And then plagues and diseases start breaking out in the five cities of the Philistines. God is fighting his own battles. He doesn't need any Israelites. He doesn't need any heroes. He doesn't need any kings. There's no Israelites in this chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 5. God doesn't need to wait for Mossad to carry out a daring commando rescue operation, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. God can take care of his own glory. Thank you very much. And in Israel's darkest hour, at the moment when their God seems weak and defeated by the forces of evil, he emerges victorious. They can't get rid of this horrible box fast enough because they've learned that God's presence is nothing to be trifled with. The presence of God is terrifying and dangerous. It's a lesson that Israel needs to learn themselves because the ark shows up in the village of Beth Shemesh, which significantly is a Levite town, the very tribe that had the special instructions for handling the ark, the Israelites who should have known better than anyone else. And these villagers, of all things, lift up the lid of the ark to check out what's inside this famous box, and 70 men are immediately struck dead. And the villagers ask themselves, who can stand before this 
holy God. God is not in our pocket. We can't control him. He's not predictable and safe. He's dangerous, too dangerous to be mishandled. And to approach lightly is death. It's time for Israel to do some real business with God. And in chapter 7, Samuel, the last and greatest of Israel's judges, summons the nation to Mizpah for a day of national repentance, a day of fasting, a day of weeping, a day of confessing their sins before God. And while they're sacrificing to God, the Philistines attack. But God's thunder throws the enemy to such a panic that they're just routed before the Israelites. And the Israelites raise a stone that they call Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped us, as God always will help his people when they choose to humble themselves in weakness before God, rather than exalt themselves and boastfully assume that we can control the Lord of hosts. Well, then there's a big jump in time. Samuel goes on to lead to judge Israel for the next 30 years. But he's getting old, and his sons are corrupt. The theme of failing fatherhood runs throughout these books. And the elders of Israel, the senior men, they confront Samuel, and they tell him, Samuel, we're going to be brutally honest. You're going to be dead soon, and your sons are terrible. We don't want these guys to reign over us. We don't want them to be judging and leading us. Here's what we really want. We've talked among ourselves, and everyone agrees. What we need is a king so we can be like all the other nations around us. Israel had been chosen and redeemed and miraculously delivered by God so they could be unlike the other nations, a shining light of holiness in the world. And all the people of God want to do is to be just like everyone else. Their strength should have been to trust in the divine presence of God. When they were trusting in God, they were invincible, indestructible, indefeatable, but they're tired of that. Sure, you know, trusting God is okay as a matter of last resort. If everything else fails, sure, but we don't want to be driven to that extremity. We'd really prefer to set things up with a strong leader and a central government and a well-equipped army So we're never forced to rely on God. We'd much prefer that situation. And Samuel is grieved. And God tells his prophet, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. But then where we'd expect judgment from God, he does something surprising. And he tells Samuel, Samuel, obey their voice. Give the people what they want. Because their sinful desires are going to be used to bring about my unchanging plan. You know, God had always meant to bring about kingship. He didn't want anarchy. He didn't want an unsettled political situation. He wanted to provide Israel with a chosen, holy, powerful, anointed king who would keep Israel safe from all evil and lead them and shepherd them in the ways of God. And so God sends Israel their first king. Not the kind of leader that God wants. First, he gives them the kind of leader that they're craving. His name's Saul. And we meet him as a young man from the tribe of Benjamin who's out hunting for some lost donkeys. Well, he finds more than he bargains for because his quest leads him to Samuel. And God tells Samuel, this is the man, anoint him as king. 
And Saul certainly looks the part. He's a big fellow. He stands head and shoulders literally above all of his neighbors. And Samuel breaks out the oil and sacredly anoints him as king at the side of the road. And Saul is freaked out. He's extremely reluctant to step into this role, but eventually, almost against his will, he's crowned king. And his first episode as king is actually a smashing success because he's filled with the spirit and he musters an army and he leads Israel to lift the Ammonite siege of the city of Jabesh Gilead. Ah, it's a promising start from this fine strapping king. And the future looks bright because if anything, Saul's son, Jonathan, is even better than his father. He's a true warrior. He's a worthy successor, a man who really loves God, the kind of person who will climb up a cliff with only his armor bearers to attack the Philistines just because he knows that God has given them into our hands. The future looks bright. The dynasty looks assured. But then Saul's fatal character flaws reveal themselves. It so often happens to people when they're thrust into a place of power and responsibility. Saul is under attack by a huge Philistine horde. His own army is panicking. They're melting away. He's losing soldiers every single day. He's supposed to wait seven days for Samuel to show up for the sacrifice. And Saul is looking at his watch thinking, there's going to be no one left by the time the prophet shows up. And so he slaughters the beast himself. And then Samuel shows up and says, Saul, you've done a foolish thing. Saul had proved himself unwilling to trust and obey God. The key character quality of any worthy king. He was willing to go a certain ways to meet the formal requirements, but in his heart, he didn't want to trust and obey God. And so Samuel tells him, Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Well, Saul was sullen and angry, but it must have been even more disappointing, I think, to Samuel, who'd invested so much in Saul to his own cost, and now he's disappointed and heartbroken by his protege. And in 1 Samuel 16, which Anne read for us, God tells Samuel, Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Don't dwell on regrets. Don't dwell on failed human leaders. God's plan goes forward. And God sends Samuel to the town of Bethlehem, the home of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the son of Obed, the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. A little book of Ruth that we studied just a few weeks ago. Now, if you compare 1 Samuel and Ruth, you realize that Ruth and Boaz, David's great-grandparents, lived about the same time as Hannah did, which I think is amazing because Hannah's singing this song. God's opening her barren womb. She's singing this song celebrating the coming kingdom of God that's going to overturn things and exalt the humble and bring down the proud. And as she's speaking this prophecy, God at the very same time on a parallel track is fulfilling that prophecy through the story of Ruth and Boaz. As all these threads come together to weave this beautiful story of God's coming king. 
Well, Samuel is intensely curious to meet Jesse's sons. Like, which of these is going to be the one that God wants as the new king of Israel? And when he's introduced to the oldest, Eliab, he thinks, ah, yes, surely this is the one I need to anoint. And he's reaching for his little bottle of oil because Eliab is every inch a king. He's tall and he's handsome. But before Samuel can uncork his bottle, the Lord shuts him down and says, Samuel, don't look on his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. You know, Samuel was about to make the same mistake that Israel had made 30 years earlier with Saul. Samuel is supposed to be a seer, a visionary. And at this critical moment, even the seer is groping in the dark like a blind man, unable to see the reality that only God can see. Because the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. Not even the things that the most spirit-anointed, spirit-filled, prophetic, gifted people see. People look at the outward appearance and constantly misjudge people. But the Lord looks at the heart. Unlike us, God's viewpoint is not limited. He penetrates to the very core of our being, our hidden center of fear and desire, the loves and hates that direct our lives. And so all seven of Jesse's sons are passed over. And Samuel is confused because he knows that he heard from God. And he asks Jesse, are, are you sure this is it? Have you perhaps forgotten someone? Well, yes, there is the runt of the family who's watching over the sheep who hadn't even been invited to this meeting. Highly symbolic, by the way, because being a shepherd is a kingly image. And we contrast David caring for and protecting the sheep with Saul losing his donkeys, two different kinds of leaders. And so dinner is put on hold until the boy arrives and he's grubby and he smells like animals. But when he walks in the room, Samuel hears the voice of God, arise, anoint him for this is the one. And Samuel pours the oil over David's head. It soaks into his hair and into his work clothes and he's chosen and he's set aside by God for a great task. And then we're told, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. It rushed on him from that day forward. And after this chapter, we, we might expect that in 1 Samuel 17, right after that, Saul would be conveniently killed off and David would go straight to the throne, stepping into the plan of God for him. That's not going to happen for 10 or 15 years, not until 2 Samuel. David's kingship is delayed for a time of preparation and testing. In receiving the Spirit, Peter Lightheart writes, David was receiving the down payment on his kingdom. The Spirit is the guarantee, it's the down payment of the kingdom that David is certainly going to receive because it's been promised by God. Two stages a private anointing, and then a public coronation, and there's a long gap in between them. And David is going to have to learn to do what Saul was unable to do, to wait on God, the thing we find hardest to do through great danger and temptation. David shows his true worth when the Philistines attack Israel yet again. This time they've got a new weapon. It's a giant, Goliath, an extremely tall Philistine who's roaring blasphemies, taunting the shaking Israelites gathered on the hillside below. Well, Israel's tallest and best armored and most well-equipped Israelite is Saul. And really nothing would have been more kingly for Saul to have done 
than to have stepped forward as the champion of his people and challenged the giant to single combat. But Saul has no more courage than the rest of his army. Only young David, who's not even a soldier, he shouldn't even be there. He's just there to deliver some cheese sandwiches to his older brothers. He's the only one who's willing to act. And he slings a stone into Goliath's forehead and then cuts the collapsed giant's head off with his own sword. And when David holds the head aloft, the frightened Israelites, the panicked army, they rise with a mighty shout and they put the Philistines to rout. And man, after that, the people can't help loving David. Yes, Saul has slain his thousands, they sing, but David has slain his ten thousands. And this well-meant but poorly chosen song lyrics, they rouse Saul to homicidal fury. And he's going to spend the rest of his reign trying to hunt this threat down and eliminate them. Now, David is nothing but loyal to King Saul. If God has anointed me and called me to the throne, he'll do that in his own time. I'm not going to lay hold of the brass ring for myself. I'm not going to assassinate the Lord's anointed. And time after time, Saul, this troubled, tormented, conflicted man, is filled with remorse and he brings David back to the household. And then the old mania breaks out and he tries to murder David again, even executing those who help David. You know, the sin and rebellion of Saul meant the loss of his dynasty, and it meant that his son, Jonathan, would never succeed to the throne. You know, that feels like a tragedy in a way, because the more you get to know Jonathan through this book, the more I, at least, I'm convinced he would have made one of the greatest of Israelite kings, especially when you read the long, shabby, depressing list of those who came after David and Solomon. He would have made an amazing king. Somehow, Jonathan has made peace with this. Somehow he's gracefully received this blow to his personal ambition, even though it was his father's fault, not his own. And when the true heir arrives, the man that God has really chosen, the one who has been anointed by the Spirit for this office, there isn't even a flicker of hesitation in Jonathan. It's amazing. Because Jonathan has a greater ambition than his own ego. He wants Israel to find her true destiny in God. And he's so consumed by this vision that it doesn't feel like a sacrifice to him to offer his robes, his armor, his very self in loyalty to David. And when he pledges allegiance to David, it's the happiest moment of his life. And he's going to faithfully keep that costly pact until his death in battle. The next 10 years, David spends in the wilderness the barren places. On the run from Saul, he starts building an army out of the men who gather to him, everyone in distress, everyone in debt, everyone who's bitter in soul, people who are angry at the system with good reason, prime for revolution. But David is not forming an army to overthrow Saul and seize power for himself. He's using them to protect Israel from her enemies, to patrol the borders that Saul is not protecting. We start to see David in the wilderness exercising true leadership. Because the real king is not the one who seizes and holds on to power, whatever the cost, but the person who takes responsibility for the welfare of others, especially the weak, the downtrodden, the helpless. And under David's leadership, this band of ruffians, these debtors and bitter people, they begin to follow their chieftain into battle to rescue other people, to liberate captives from slavery. 
It's not the path that Saul is on. And facing one last massive Philistine invasion, he feels a terrible premonition. Saul's been alienated from God. Samuel's dead. He no longer can hear God's voice. And he seeks to contact the dead and buried Samuel through an old woman, a ghost wife. And Samuel comes out of the shadows and he delivers God's judgment to Saul. Saul. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me in the grave. And the Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel's prophecy is terribly fulfilled in the battle that ends the book. Saul commits suicide. His sons and his army are destroyed in battle. And the nation basically collapses. And so first Samuel ends with the terrible failure of human political leadership. People had demanded a king to save them from the Philistines. A king like all the other nations, a military hero, and they'd chosen a man head and shoulders above the rest, the pinnacle of human strength. And Saul, who'd begun so meekly, had fallen in love with his own ego and his own status. And he became obsessed with eliminating the threat to his power instead of shepherding his people. And in the end, Saul proved unable to be the savior that Israel so desperately needed. And his personal failure became a national tragedy. Samuel had grieved for Saul, not just for Saul's own sake, not just for his personal story, but because Samuel knew that the people's future was linked to the king's. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. The king is not a private man. He's a public person. When the king turns out to be evil or weak or possesses a divided heart or stops listening to God, the kingdom will rot and collapse. And you know what? Sinful human beings always turn out to be evil, weak, or divided. You know, we've reached the end of Saul's story. It's not the end of God's story. And it's not the end of Israel's story either. The book seems to complete on another dead end, but the kingdom of God marches on. And even in defeat and despair, it gathers strength. You know, the king that Israel had chosen had failed them. But there is another king that God has chosen and who's about to step onto the throne. And David's story, of course, points us to great David's greater son. Because Jesus is the king that God has chosen. He's not the king that we selected. We didn't vote and choose the best of ourselves for the office. Not the king we selected. We rejected him when he appeared. But he is the king that God knew that we needed. The king who has receive the spirit permanently and without measure. The man after God's own heart came to die for the sins of his people, to rise in victory over death, to ascend and reign forever at the right hand of God. And his kingdom will have no end. It's the very gospel that we will confess together in a few moments when we say the Nicene Creed out loud. 
Why do we celebrate the triumph of Jesus? What does his reign, his victory, his kingdom have to do with us? Because as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Christ's destiny is our destiny. His victory is our victory. His kingdom is our kingdom. Because when the king kills the giant and cuts off the head of the enemy, the frightened, panicking people on the hillside rise and share in that victory. What is the kingdom that we're seeking today? We're all tempted to seek kingdoms of this world, and there are many different kingdoms on offer. Liberal ones, conservative ones, political and religious. All these different systems of political power by which human beings can organize themselves and fight off what we fear the most. What they all share, what they all have in common is they're built and maintained by human power for human ends. And they're vulnerable, they're insecure, they're already collapsing. What God offers us is the unshakable kingdom of Christ. A kingdom that will have no end because the king will have no end. He's passed beyond the power of death. He is incorruptible, indestructible, undefeatable. And his victory and his kingdom are offered to us as God's gift. Not the king we selected, not the one we chose, not the one that we presented to God, but the king that God knew that we needed. So shall we pray and ask God to open our hearts to more deeply receive his kingdom and respond in loyalty, trust, and obedience to King Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this king that you have sent, that you have raised up, that you have anointed, that you have crowned, and even now is sitting at your right hand, reigning over the nations with a rod of iron, laughing at those enemies that so terrify us, sin, Satan, death. Lord, we confess that we have foolishly looked to human leaders and human strength. We've looked to the princes of this earth who have done so little for us, who have so often disappointed us and betrayed us, O Lord. We've trusted even more foolishly in ourselves and in our own power to make our lives secure and meaningful and worthwhile. Forgive us, O Lord. Help us to fix our eyes on King Jesus, ascended, victorious, reigning. And Lord, may we come to him as his glad and loyal subjects, rejoicing in the kingdom that he has so graciously invited us into. In his precious name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.